In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am old, I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring to you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Good morning, Covenant. It's good to see everyone this morning. And uh, parents, just as a reminder, if for some reason you need your children in this service, they are not in a normal room where we have Covenant Cove this morning. Uh, Just for today, you need to go out the back into the gym area that's behind us there. The school needed to make that adjustment for us uh, because of other events they have going on this week. So recently, um, my son, uh, MJ, and I, excuse me, we went to a Casting Crowns concert. And uh, we got there early, and we were sitting on the floor, the main floor, a couple of sections back, and, you know, they had the, the warm-up acts that were going and were singing. And I was, we were sitting there, and I was like, man, Jerry, these seats are great. We can see everything, and, you know, vision is an important topic in our house and the ability to, to see the singers and screen, and, and it was great. But uh, what happened was those great seats pretty soon turned out to not be so great. Because uh, what I realized was there was nobody in the room because it was the warm-up acts, right? And uh, pretty soon, all of the seats were just packed with people when it was the main act casting crowns. They came in with their concessions and from the bathroom and from their merchandise, and, and now we couldn't see any longer. And I was reminded that it's, people don't come for the warm-up acts. They come for the headliner, typically, And I bring that up because I think 
in the story of Jesus and the Gospels, uh, we tend to see John the Baptist like a warm-up band. And he gets skipped over. You know, we, we, Luke 2 is so familiar to us, the story of Christmas. We read it every year. We almost have the words of it memorized. It's so well known. But, but Luke does not start with Jesus. Remember, we saw last week in the first four verses, he says, I'm going to go back to the beginning. And going back to the beginning starts not with Jesus, but John the baptizer. Okay, and I said, well, I thought he was John the Baptist. It's literally John the Baptizer, and it's through the years he's become known as John the Baptist. And let me tell you, church, John the Baptizer is no second-rate warm-up act. He is a key figure in God's redemptive plan. Um, For 400 years, God has been silent. Uh, There's been no prophet of God who's come to the people and said to them, Thus says the Lord. For 400 years, and all kinds of events have occurred. Nations have come into the, into the land, and Israel, the, Jew, the Jewish people, have been under one ruler, and then another ruler, and another kingdom, and they've had all kinds of horrible events occur to them. And during that 400 years, many of the Israelites apostatized. They, they turned their back on God. They no longer serve Him, or they develop a religion of, of human performance and works. So as we see in our opening verses, though, in this passage, not everyone had apostatized. There was a faithful remnant still in the land, serving God's God, doing right by him, giving him the glory with their lives. In these opening verses, there are details that we need to pay attention to because it sets an important context that we're going to need to understand even as we go through the entire book of Luke. It begins mentioning this man, Herod, who is king of Judea. Herod had essentially been put in power. He was, a, he was a, a, from the land, a, from Edom, and he had, been, he had been put in power as the king of the Jews in 38 BC by the Romans. He was friendly with the Romans. He, he got everything calmed down in the region. He was ruling. Uh, he was uh, quite the builder. He had 11 wives. He was known for killing his kids. He was, a, he was a really evil person. This is the Herod, Herod the Great. Not too much great about him from our perspective, but this is the Herod the Great, the Herod that we're going to see in the Jesus story that wants all the children put to death because they're a threat to him. So he comes to power in 38 B.C. In 20 B.C., in order to to gain favor with the Israelites, especially the priests and those who worship God, who didn't really care for him too much, he looks at the temple and he says, this building is now 500 years old. This is the the temple that was built by Zerubbabel and the the exiles who came back from Babylon. And it was a pretty humble uh, building. And he says, we need to make God's house nicer than this. And so he begins this major project, and it's, it's impressive. He brings like 15,000 construction workers, and in two years, they have the, the buildings up, the complex is done. Just to give you an idea of what this was like, this is modern Jerusalem today. I'm try, hopefully, you can see around me. You can see the, the Dome of the Rock, which is a Muslim uh, shrine now, and, and you can see kind of the walls and everything of the old city, this is what it looked like back in Jesus' time. So you can kind of see that similarity on the footprint that was there. Now, to give you a, an idea of the scope of this, this is the largest construction project in the ancient world. 
It's the largest architectural complex in the ancient world. It is twice the size of the Roman Colosseum and the Forum, which is so famous. It is 170,000 square yards. It is uh, 35 acres. The blocks in those walls are 100 tons each, and they were moved by human beings without cranes, which we can appreciate with our building project. Um, that white marble and stone with gold leaf, that, that, that temple building, you can kind of see a little bit of it. It, was, uh, it had gold leaf everywhere. It was elaborate. And those porches to the sides were just beautiful. The murals and the white marble and gold it was, that was contained. Uh, they finished it in two years, which is really intimidating when you think about our building project right now. Right? <laughs> Well, I say two years. They got the buildings up, and he got the big walls because he, he expanded the mountaintop, and he got retaining walls and all the... But it was another 60... No, excuse me, 80 years. It wasn't until 60 AD that all the finished work was done. Hopefully, that's not our experience, right? When they were done, those white walls that you see were gold. They were gold-plated and the, the Jewish historian Josephus, who was alive at that time, wrote, At sunrise it shimmered with the utmost brilliance and dazzled the eye like rays of the sun. You could see it from miles away. So this, this complex is huge in the story of Luke, and it's, it's big in our opening verses here. So we see Herod and the temple. There are priests there. Specifically, we're told that the division of Abijah is now serving uh, there were around ten to 20,000 priests in the land at any given time. They did not all serve at the same time. Only three times a year did they all come to the temple and serve, which was the, the big festival days. But normally, they were divided up in among these 24 companies or divisions, about 500 to 700 priests. They would come to Jerusalem twice a year and serve for one week each year. And their duties were assigned to them each day. And those duties were assigned to them by the casting of lots, kind of like a, an ancient lottery or dice system. And they would then receive their responsibilities for that day taking place. We find here on this day that there's the priest by the name of Zechariah who's married to Elizabeth. Now remember, in the ancient days, Israelites, their names were significant that they gave their children. The name Zechariah means the Lord remembers and that you'll, that'll be big in a moment. And Elizabeth, my God is an oath. Or in other words, my God is an absolutely faithful one. So these opening verses, they give us important details as to the historical context. Just kind of tuck them away. They also give us important details that build the dramatic tension. So for example, we realize that God says about Zechariah and uh, um, Elizabeth that they, their character was of the highest order. Uh, they were righteous and blameless before God. And now they were still sinners. That doesn't mean they were perfect. But in other words, they were serving God out of a genuine heart. They loved him. They were worshiping him. Even though many in their society had turned their back on God, they were part of that faithful remnant of God's people that he always has in place who were carrying out worship and service to him. We also discover that on this day, it is the pinnacle of Zechariah's priestly career. 
absolutely the apex of his career. You see, in the temple, this is a cutaway of the actual building itself. You see those, uh, I think I've got, do I have a little... Maybe I don't have a a laser, but you see those little steps going up to the doors. This is like a cutout. This is the temple building, and that room right there where the altars and all that's called the the holy place. And then behind that curtain is the holy of holies. Now, why is all that significant? You see, at the beginning of the day, as the sun would rise by lottery, a priest would be given a responsibility to go into the holy place, burn incense, and offer up prayers for the people. That incense going up was like the prayers of the people going up. He would then come out and they would have the first sacrifice of the day and it was the sacrifice for the nation of Israel and their sins. Then the day would progress and that incense, that morning incense was important because, man, that place reeked. All the animals being disemboweled and just think of an outdoor massive butcher shop with guts and blood everywhere. It was a bloody place and it stunk. At the end of the day, the lot, uh, there was a priest who would be given the honor of now having that final sacrifice, again, for the nation and their sins, and the order was reversed. He would sacrifice, then go back into the holy place, burn the incense, they'd go up, he'd come back out on that porch, and you can't see it, but way over here behind a retaining wall are the people, and he would come out on that porch, and he would give them the priestly blessing every evening. And now the night is done. On this day, the lot fell to Zechariah. He's going to go in at the end of the day, burn the incense, come out, give the priestly blessing. Most priests never got to do this. And if they did get to do it, they only got to do it one time in their entire life. That was it. And so this day is the pinnacle of his career. So righteous, good people Great day, and now there's one more tension point. No children. Zechariah and Elizabeth are well past the age where they can conceive. They are older now. Uh, You know, they're my age, at least, something like that. And they have no children. You know, several of you, you've experienced the frustrations that come with infertility. Um, But the ancient Israelites took it to an extreme level. So, in other words... If you were married and you did not have children, everyone believed that this was punishment from God upon you because of some sin in your life or some sinful practice in your life or in your family's life that was so bad that God is now bearing out his wrath upon you and you're not having children because God is angry with you. You're not having children because there's deep you know, dysfunction and sin and shame before God. And so because of this, in the ancient world, there was all the stigma attached, to, a, a, especially to the woman who did not conceive and have children, because I guess it never crossed their minds that the problem might be with the dude, right? It was always the woman who was at fault. Sorry, ladies. That's the way it was. And there's all this stigma attached to this, all this shame. In fact, so great was the stigma and shame that the rabbis automatically would give a man a divorce from a woman who did not conceive. No fault, divorce. Go on, find someone else. And so, in fact, later in the passage, Elizabeth herself refers to this state as her disgrace, her reproach. So what joy? 
had to be in the heart of this older priest, Zechariah, to experience the blessing on this day. Because after all, the scriptures teach us that the very results of the casting of the lots are because of God's sovereignty. He was chosen on this day because God wanted him to be the priest that gets this honor. And so how this would have lightened his heart to realize that in spite of the disappointment of no children, this lifetime of serving God and being faithful to God and honoring him is now a day where he is being recognized by God and being honored by God, getting to do this role that is the second highest task in a priestly task list outside of the high priest going behind the Holy of Holies. It was this task, and this is his day. So there's this faithful remnant. Next, what we see is the forerunner announced. Verse 11, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And so here's that altar, right? And there's a, over here to the right, there's a table with some bread and there's the, the candle, the, the menorah with the candles because there's no windows. They need light. They didn't have any natural light like we're going to have in ours, right? That, none of that is dark. He's standing there. He's praying. All of a sudden, right over here to his right, there is an angel, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell about No wonder I would be too, right? I tell you what we are going through in my mind, okay? Did I just mess up? Is he here to strike me dead? You know, because, I mean, this is, all, this is serious stuff here, and I just, oh my, he's here. Oh, what did I do wrong? You know, that's got to be good. No, that's not it at all. Not at all. In fact, he says, do not be afraid, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name John. And these next verses are significant because of the wording, and we're going to try to unpack some of this in a moment. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. These are the important words. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, many of you, I think that most of you know that uh, I like to fish. Uh, what you may not know is I really like to fish at sundown, the hour or two before sundown, into the evening hours. In fact, when I was a much younger m man, uh, I would go out uh, you know, an hour or two before sundown, and I would stay out on the ocean all night long, or on the Gulf of Mexico, and I would stay out there all night fishing, you know, because I enjoyed fishing at night. And you know, here's the thing, especially back in those days when, you know, only light you had practically was like, you know, the old Coleman lanterns. You remember those things in light of a hurricane and you lit them with the little things? Well, anyway, you get what I'm talking about. And we didn't have all these bright lights that you now have in boats, LED lights that, you know, turns everything bright during the middle of the evening. And here's what you find in the ocean at night. As the night gets longer and it's really dark like that, you don't have all that light, you get more and more uncomfortable. More and more, you begin to realize how tiny you are in the grand scheme of things. And then you begin to wonder, 
is my motor going to start in the morning when I need to leave? <laughs> and, and so your imagination, your eyes start playing tricks on you, and your imagination can start spiraling a little out of control, and it, it no longer is fun anymore at sometimes at night. But here's the great thing about it. You learn in time, if you do it enough, that there's a point late in the evening, or what we would say in the morning hours, that the sky begins to change. And you begin to look for this one celestial body. And when this one celestial body begins to get brighter and brighter, the morning star, you know, which is actually the planet Venus, but as it gets on the horizon, it gets brighter and brighter, you know something. You know that the sun is just about to, to come up. It is the forerunner of the sun. I don't know if you knew that or not, but you can see it, especially when you're out on the water at night. I tell you that because with the words that Gabriel gives Zechariah, he now realizes something important. His wife is joining the ranks of the greatest matriarchs of the Old Testament. She's joining the ranks of, of Sarah and Rebekah and Rachel, and Manoah, the mother of Samson, Hannah, the mother of Samuel. She's going to be one of these women who was not able to conceive, yet when God moves miraculously in their life, their child ends up being a pivotal person in redemptive history. And in this case, in Elizabeth's case, she's going to be the mother of the prophesied, long-anticipated forerunner who would herald a new day of God's salvation. The, the light of God's son was about to burst upon the world's stage, and her son was going to be the morning star, the forerunner. That as everybody sees him, knows something even bigger is coming. The day of the Lord is now about upon us. 400 years of silence. But the last messages God's people had been given was to look for this person. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. I'm sorry, there was the morning star. I had a picture for you. Um, but here, here, you want to go back and see that again? Uh, there we go. That's it. You can see it now, even in the sky. But uh, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So you get this? They're, they're looking for a messenger who is to precede the day of the Lord and the great intervention of God in their lives. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The last chapter of Malachi, chapter 4. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stalls, and you shall tread down the wicked, for there'll be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land. What did Gabriel tell him? This son who you are going to have, he will come out with the spirit of Elijah. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. You mean I am going to be the father of this promised forerunner? 
This is what now burst upon uh, Zechariah's mind as he realizes the significance of this. Gabriel says, your prayer has been heard. What was he praying for? What was he praying for in that temple? When, when the angel says your prayer has been heard, is he referring to the prayer for his son to have a child? I would suggest to you at that moment, no. That's not what he was praying for. Uh, I think as you see in the, in the next couple of verses, he was carrying out his role as a faithful, righteous priest. He was there at the altar of incense praying for the salvation of his people of the nation of Israel, praying that God would once again speak and act and move for the salvation and the good of his chosen people. That's what he's praying for. That's his role as a priest. And this prayer has been heard. Gabriel says, it's here. The day of salvation has come. Oh, and by the way, you know there's other prayers that you've been praying years ago that you don't even pray anymore? That's how I'm going to do it. How cool is that? How awesome is that? And you, and you know that, this, that th he was not praying for a child because of the next section, which is what I'm describing as a fearsome encounter. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. He was a brave man to say that for all of eternity about his wife. But anyway, um, <laughs> you, you, you see what he's saying here? He's saying... Well, that's impossible. Uh, that, that can't happen. So, so he wasn't there praying for his son, and now Gabriel, and he goes, really? I'm going to have a son? This is great. No. He, he is praying for Israel, and now it's like, you mean we're going to have a son? That, that, no, that can't happen. Absolutely not. I, I, I love this scene that happens here. It reminds me of uh, how many of you have seen, you know, like The Hobbit, the Lord of the Rings movies? Um, okay, that's most of you. Okay. Um, you know, at the end of The Hobbit, the fifth armies, the, the Battle of the Fifth Armies, uh, Gandalf and Bilbo are saying goodbye to one another. They're on the border of the Shire, and Gandalf knows that Bilbo has the one ring, the ring that will rule them all, and Bilbo's been lying to Gandalf the entire time, and as they're saying goodbye, you know, Gandalf gives him one more opportunity to fess up, and he denies it, lies right to his face, and, you know, Gandalf looks at him, and he says, I'm very fond of you, Bilbo Baggins, but you are only a quite little fellow in the great big world. And then he just stares at him like, I know you're lying to me. Well, you know, fast forward years later, the Lord of the Rings first movie, you know, Bilbo Baggins does this little disappearing act and he comes and comes into the home and he, he takes the ring off. He was lying the whole time. And and he's about to leave with the elves, and he's ready to go, and he's laughing. And you know, what he doesn't realize is that Gandalf is standing in his house. And Gandalf said, oh, how about that ring after all? You know, so he, he got caught in his lie. And Bilbo says, okay, yes, you can have it, because Gandalf knows he needs the ring for what's about to happen, to defeat Sauron. Well, there's this scene, you know, and I want you to just take a look at it for a moment, and then I'm going to show you how it relates. Play that, play that movie, if you would. So I can't help but think that when Zechariah expresses doubt that Gabriel went all Gandalf on him, <laughs> and he says, I am Gabriel, 
I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And you doubt me? I'll show you. I'll give Elizabeth the best nine months she's ever had. You're not going to speak another word. <laughs> and he comes out, right? He comes out of the temple, and they all know something's happened because he can't give the priestly blessing. He's, he's making signs, and, and he can't talk. There, there's maybe even a suggestion that he can't hear. And there's a part of me that really identifies with Zechariah, and I kind of feel sorry for him in a way. Um, you know, in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter, who is the eyewitness to the most amazing things, and he says in verses, I think, 16, 17, that, you know, I saw all these miracles. I was on the Mount of Transfiguration when I heard the voice of God the Father singing praise over God the Son. We heard this, but then he says, but here's the thing. Now you have a more sure word of promise from God. You have many more words from God than I heard on the Mount of Transfiguration. God, through his Spirit, has moved through the prophets and the apostles to give you the very word of God in the Scriptures. And he says, you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining into a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. And so my heart kind of goes out to Zechariah because how many times have I doubted the more sure word of God's revelation? And if he gave me eyes that could see the unseen world, how many times in my life would I have seen angelic beings going all Gandalf on me? <laughs> because of my lack of belief in the word of God. It's something that we all struggle with, isn't it? Well, this morning, this passage, this is known as the Annunciation of John. It's a famous passage. Next week, we're going to see the Annunciation of Jesus. And, and you come to a passage like this, and you go, well, how does it relate to us? And I think the way this applies to us is in these last three verses, especially, there's a couple of important applications in these verses which reveal and center on the fullness of God's grace. When Zechariah's time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. You see in this passage important applications for us. First of all, God's most profound interactions with us often occur in times of personal sadness and disappointment. Most of us can relate to and identify with Zechariah and Elizabeth's walk with God. In fact, we, because we've all faced disappointment. It's, it's good for us to see that faithful people who love God, who are seeking to serve God and glorify God with their lives, are not exempt from tribulation and disappointment. In fact, they experience some of the deepest disappointment and shame and stigma and confusion and hurt that you could have in that era of world history and redemptive history. And they had to live it. Day in and day out, year after year after year, 
you know they poured their hearts out to God, wanting deliverance from this situation that they were in, and they did not receive it. How great was the temptation to get bitter at God and turn their back on God in disappointment and blaming him. Yet they clearly rejected that path. Even in spite of their pain, they trusted God's goodness. They trusted his faithfulness and his plan. And this is so hard for us to do. It's so hard for us to focus on God's goodness and his grace, to to trust in his mercy and his grace and goodness rather than focusing on our disappointments. But doing this is key if we're going to experience the fullness of God's grace. Now, I got news for you. Zechariah and Elizabeth were sinners. They did not do this perfectly all the time. None of us ever will. None of us do this perfectly. I can point to years of failure. Years of failure. But failure does not mean you aren't experiencing his grace. It just means you don't see it at the time. When you begin to blame God and turn against God and focus on yourself, God's grace is still there. His grace is in your life. It's all around you, and His goodness is there. But we can't see it because we become obsessed with ourselves and our reproach, our shame, whatever form it may take. And our eyes are so much on that thing, that event, that experience that we miss out on the overwhelming manifestations of God's goodness and grace that are in our lives every single day. And so what ends up happening is our perception of God's grace is affected. Our enjoyment of God's grace is what's affected. But God's grace is still there. It's full for his children, as is his patience. Daryl Bach writes this, Often the best lessons come to us through our interaction with God in terms of real-life situations when we experience things that drive us to him and to his promises. God never guarantees that life will come without pain and disappointment. The central issue is how we handle it. Trust and dependence will cause us to find fulfillment in ways we would not even have considered otherwise. Sometimes a roadblock is not a dead end, but a fresh turn in the road. I wonder if there aren't some here this morning who need to realize this aspect of this story and of God's work in your life. That you're experiencing painful events. You're experiencing events that you would describe or have experienced events that you would describe as your disgrace, as Elizabeth also described it, your reproach. And your greatest need this morning is to have that reproach lifted from you, that weight removed from your shoulders for you to once again recapture the joy of the Lord. For some of you, you need to to maybe consider that these events are God actually driving you to enter into a relationship with him for the first time. That the only way he can get our attention is sometimes to make us so uncomfortable and so desperate that we have nowhere to turn but to him. 
That just shows the, the depth of our sinfulness and our stubbornness. So how do we get to that point? Well, John, he removed the reproach and stigma that Elizabeth carried with her from the social aspect because of his birth. But more importantly, he was the forerunner of the one who would remove Zechariah and Elizabeth's deeper reproach, their deeper shame, their deepest need, which is also our deepest need and the result of and the cause of our deepest shame and our deepest reproach. You see, John points us, this story is meant to begin pointing us to Jesus. And it's through Jesus that our deepest reproach is going to be taken away and our dignity is restored. This table that we are about to partake of proclaims this miracle of the gospel. That John, who is the forerunner, the morning star of the, the sun, who will now burst upon the stage and bring life to God's people. And how will he do this? He will do this and remove our reproach by becoming a reproach himself. He will handle our sin and our shame and address it and restore us from it by taking that sin and that shame upon himself. Elizabeth's greatest reproach was not the fact that she had not had a child. Her greatest reproach was the same reproach we have, sin. And in removing Elizabeth's sin by paying for them on the cross, Jesus removes our reproach. This meal is meant to represent that. As we look at the bread, we think about what Jesus said in John chapter 6. How God in this day has now feeding us and giving us life, not through our own performance and our own actions, but through the bread of life, who is Jesus. If you want restoration from your reproach and your despair, it starts by feeding upon Christ and turning to him in repentance and in faith. This meal is meant to do one, two things. For those of you who have never turned to Christ, it's meant to encourage you to reject self and embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior. For he is the one who can restore your life and give you salvation. For those of you who know him, this is a time for us to be fed by Christ, to be strengthened through his presence here in this room, in the Holy Spirit, in this meal, by considering what each of these elements represent to us at the spiritual level, which has so many applications and implications in our everyday lives. This table is meant for everyone who is a Christian, who is trusting in Christ. If you are here this morning and you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, you're welcome to take this meal with us. The only persons that we ask to not take the meal this morning are children who have not yet been examined by the elders. Parents, if your children have come to faith, we encourage you to make an appointment and we'll talk with them. If you are maybe been at another church and they have told you that you may not take the Lord's Supper for some reason, we honor that restriction that another church may put upon you. And the only other reason is if, if you are simply as a Christian refusing to confess sin that's in your life, to acknowledge it, if you love your sin and you're coddling in it and holding on to it, refusing to call sin, sin, then this meal is not for you. But if you're a sinner 
and you need encouragement and restoration, and you know that you're in Christ, and you know what the struggles of life are like, this meal is exactly for you this morning. Let's pause and let's pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to take this meal together. Lord, I pray for the one who may be here this morning who doesn't know you as Savior, that even today, Lord Jesus, their eyes would be opened, that you would do a work in their heart, that they would not just simply acknowledge you mentally, but in their soul, they would turn to you and bow and become your follower. You would be their king. May they acknowledge their sin and their need of a Savior even this morning. And for those of us who know Jesus this morning, as we take this meal together as brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord Jesus, we ask that you would work among us, that you would strengthen us. Lord Jesus, we come to you asking that you would purify us. Lord, we know that each and every one of us, we know the struggles of life. We know the, the fight against sin. We know that we can never come to this table on our own merit. And we don't do so this morning, Lord Jesus. We come to this table based upon who you are and what you have done for us and, who, and what you mean to us as Savior. So we ask that you cleanse us, that you feed us this morning in this sacrament. In your name we pray, amen.